Well, a number of years ago now, I was on uh, bedtime duty with our four young sons. We used to trade off the different duties at bedtime. Um, and I had already finished with our two older boys who had their own room. Uh, excuse me, two younger boys who had their own room. And I was in with our older boys just trying to finish up story time and bedtime and so forth. When our youngest son, who was supposed to be in his room in his bed, came bursting into the room. And I was a little bit irritated because he was supposed to already be going to sleep. And he came running in and he said, uh, Daddy... I said, what? What do you need, bud? He goes, I made a mess. I made a mess, Daddy. And I said, well, go back to your room and go to bed. I'll be there in a minute. And I was a little bit frustrated with him. And I finished up with the older boys. Um, but I, something made me curious as he left the room, the little one. And I said, wait, wait, wait bud, what kind of mess? And he said, the eye's really big. He said, with the fish. And that got my attention because we were in the fish phase of family pets at that time. We sort of graduated from the lizard phase, and we weren't quite at the dog phase yet. So we're at the fish phase, and they had a little fishbowl in their room. Um, that little fishbowl had exactly one fish in it. It was an angel fish that our younger boys had creatively named Angel. <laughs> this is not the fish, but it looked like that. Um, and so I got to his room, and I discovered that for some reason he had decided that he needed to feed the fish before he went to sleep. And he pushed a chair over to the dresser where the little fishbowl was. He got the fish canister, the fish food canister. And when he went to try to see the, the top had popped off, and he dumped the entire canister into the little fishbowl. And there was now a, like a two-inch thick sludge of fish food on top of the water. And I looked underneath the sludge, and there was Angel the Angelfish just gulping down fish flakes as fast as he or she could. And I'm sure thinking, yes, yes, thank you, thank you. But I knew that probably wasn't a good thing. I'm not a marine biologist, but I just didn't think that was a, a good thing. Uh, and sure enough, um, I did my best to clean out the tank, but the next morning, uh, Angel the Angelfish seemed a little sluggish. And by that night, our next oldest son, the four-year-old, came to me and said, Dad, what's wrong with the fish? I said, what do you mean? And he said, Angel shrunk. So I went up to look, and sure enough, Angel the Angelfish was floating on the surface of the water, looking a little smaller and actually a little stiff. So I had to break the news to our boys that Angel the Angelfish had expired, and most likely due to the complications, due to overeating. Um, so we had to conduct a somber bathroom burial at sea, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but it hit me later that we just encountered the two great problems of human existence. One was my little son's problem, because he had made a mess that he couldn't clean up. And the other was Angel the Angelfish's problem. You know, today there's a fish in the fish tank on the dresser, and tomorrow it's gone. And that problem is called death. James tells us in his book in the New Testament, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Our lives, we know, are temporary and fragile. Disappearing with no explanation. Our lives, time, slipping through our fingers like, like sand. But the story we celebrate today is God's answer to both of those problems. We're going to read, I'm going to read for you a very familiar story to us as believers, Luke chapter 24, as he recounts the great story of the empty tomb. Let me read through this, and then we'll break it down to see what we have to learn. Luke writes, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Now, we know the crucifixion took place on Friday afternoon, uh, and the Sabbath in Jewish custom began on Friday evening at sundown. So there had not been enough time to properly prepare and anoint Jesus' body for burial in the Jewish custom. So they had 
placed his body in a tomb, and it had been sealed, uh, and the women had to come back after the Sabbath day. Saturday had gone by on Sunday, which was the first day of the work week, which we would call, which for us would be a Monday. And so they go back to do the grim task of anointing Jesus' body. That's what they were prepared to do. That's what they expected to do, but that's not what they found. Verse 2, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Uh, Literally, the words there mean clothes that flashed like lightning. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, which is almost always the reaction of human beings to angelic uh, beings in the Bible, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, this is a familiar story to all of us here today. It's what we expect to hear on Easter Sunday morning. But I want you to see that there are a lot of unexpected things in this familiar story. Now, before we even get into the heart of the text, there are two really obvious unexpected things that happen right off the bat. First, the women discover that the stone has already been rolled away. Now, this would have been quite confusing to them because they had been there and they knew that the tomb had been sealed on Friday evening. Uh, They knew that the stone, which in those days would have been a stone weighing somewhere between one and two tons, uh, that had been uh, rolled in front or slid in front of the tomb to, to seal it. They knew that a guard had been placed to protect it all weekend, and they knew that, it had, that the official seal of Rome had been placed on it. And if you broke that seal, uh, you were uh, guilty of a crime that was punishable uh, by death. And Mark's gospel tell us, tells us that on their way, they had been wondering how in the world they were going to be able to properly anoint the body because they needed to get that stone rolled away and they couldn't do it by themselves. So that's the first thing they noticed. They had to be surprised that the stone was already moved. The second thing they see is that the tomb was empty. Now, this was even more confusing to them because they knew they were in the right place. They knew Jesus' body had been laid in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, and they had seen it being sealed in there. And this would have been terribly upsetting to them because they were going to anoint the body of the master that they loved. And who would do such a thing to take a body, to steal a body out of a tomb? Terribly upsetting. John tells us that one of the women, Mary Magdalene, uh, ran back and told the disciples, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where to find him. So both of these discoveries would have been totally unexpected and very confusing, but that's only the beginning of the surprises. The first thing I want to point out is an unexpected question. An unexpected question. Verse 4, Luke tells us, While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened with their, uh, and bowed with their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? That's the question. A number of years ago, I was uh, 
channel surfing one night at home, just flipping through channels, seeing what's, what's on TV. Um, and I came across a Discovery Channel special about an ancient people group in South America called the Chinchuro people. Their society flourished some 8,000 years ago. So this is a very ancient group of people, and they lived in a region of South America that we now call Chile. Uh, and excavations show that what made them unique, or one of the things that made them unique as a people, is how they treated their dead. When a chinchuro died, their relatives would take the body to sort of their version of an ancient undertaker who would then carefully and very artfully um, mummify their loved one. Uh, they would remove all the skin. Uh, the, this gets a little uh, detailed, but uh, all the muscle tissue and organs removed, replaced with straw and grass and things like that. And then the skeleton would be arranged in whatever position uh, the family wanted, and then they would recover with the skin and dry it out. Voila, you have a mummified, preserved relative. I will show you photos, but they are a little gruesome for a Sunday morning. Now, lots of ancient cultures made mummies, the Egyptians for one, and they would put them in elaborate tombs and pyramids and things like that, but the Chinchuro didn't do that. Evidence is that they brought their mummies back home with them, and they lived with them. They'd maybe put them in their favorite chair, you know, sit them in front of the fireplace, and they, they did it evidently to keep alive the memory and the presence of their deceased loved one. And now by now you're either thinking, that's really gross, or you're thinking, well, that's nothing. I've lived with a mummified relative for years. <laughs> Don't look to the right or the left. Just look straight ahead. Or you're thinking, well, that's an 8,000-year-old tribe. We're way more civilized than that. Or are we? We may not make mummies to keep us company, but I do think uh, we have the same human tendency to look for the living among the dead. The women have gone to, to, uh, to complete a grim duty out of love to prepare and wrap Jesus' body for burial. They had seen him die, and they fully expect to find his body cold and very much dead. But they're met by two brilliantly dressed uh, heavenly beings who confront them with a question. A question aimed, I think, not just at these ancient grieving women, but aimed at us as well. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Translated into our world today, I think we could ask the question like this. Why do you seek the eternal in the finite? Or why do you seek meaning and fulfillment in things that are superficial and temporary? Things like work, which is good, but not eternal. Money, which is necessary, but not eternal. Possessions. Have you noticed, by the way, how many of the advertisements we see today on the internet, Facebook, on your phone, or on TV, um, are actually not about the product that's being sold. We are very subtly, or not so subtly, um, being sold something else. For example, we're told that a car can make you more secure as a person. Or a candy bar can make you more confident. Or a body spray can get you the love you've been looking for all your life. Here are some of my favorites I've found. A long-running Coke ad campaign says, open happiness. It's a soft drink. Or how about this one by Dunkin' Donuts? You can't put a price on happiness, but 25-cent donuts help. Now, for me, this is getting closer, right? It's getting closer. Or how about this car ad? 100% joy, 0% emissions. And this is an ad for a fragrance, eternity. 
I'm not quite sure what the message of that is. You know, we can all smell good in heaven. I don't know. What are we being sold? It might be education or relationships or entertainment or our retirement fund. But we are told day after day in a thousand ways to place our ultimate hope, our ultimate trust in that which is not ultimate. To invest our lives, to invest our faith, to invest our souls in that which cannot satisfy. Here's another way to ask the question. Why are you living as if Jesus is still dead? Why are you living as if Jesus is still dead? Here's a thought, and I think it's true. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who live as though Jesus is still dead, and those who live as if Jesus is alive. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. But the unexpected question we see here is, why do you seek the living among the dead? Then comes the second thing, an unexpected announcement. An unexpected announcement. In 1996, well, I know it's a long time ago, I was part of a team from this church that visited uh, what then was our sister church in Russia, uh, Transfiguration Baptist Church in Samara. It's about 400 miles southeast of Moscow. But we had a day in Moscow as we arrived just to kind of get our feet in the ground. So we did a tour of uh, Moscow itself and Red Square. Uh, We saw the Kremlin. We saw St. Basil's Cathedral. You know, that's the spectacular cathedral with the multicolored spires and stuff. Beautiful. And then our guide asked us if we wanted to see Lenin's tomb. We hadn't even thought about that, but we said, sure, that'd be interesting. So we stood in this long line, uh, had our cameras temporarily confiscated by these military police, and then entered this darkened room, and there he was, the embalmed body of Vladimir Lenin, the leader of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, lying in what looked like a big plexiglass case. And I recognized him immediately from like history classes and photographs I'd seen, you know, the bald head, neatly trimmed beard, And the truth was, he looked pretty good for a guy who'd been dead for like 70 years. Now, it was a little creepy, but we got exactly what we expected when we went to Lenin's tomb. We saw Lenin in a tomb. Look at this story, verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed with their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? That's the question. And here comes the statements. He is not here He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. I think there are actually three unexpected statements packed in this little paragraph. First, he is not here. Imagine if we waited 45 minutes in line in Moscow at Lenin's tomb, gotten to the entrance, and the military-looking guard there said, what do you want? And we said, we'd like to see Comrade Lenin. And he says, he's not here. Well, we might be disappointed, but we would simply assume that either we had come to the wrong building or they had moved his plexiglass tomb to some other location. And we'd say, okay, tell us where to go so we can see him. That's what the women assumed, that someone had simply stolen or taken his body somewhere. You know, throughout the centuries, there have been many, many attempts, often by really, really smart people, to deny the claims of the New Testament, to deny the truth of the resurrection. And then they offer alternative explanations for what the scriptures tell us. And there's lots of them, but basically they come down to three main categories of alternative explanations. The first category is what I would call conspiracy theories. 
That is, after the crucifixion, the followers of Jesus, those people who loved him and thought he would be the Messiah, conspired to fabricate a fictional story about a resurrected Messiah, and thus to create a new religious movement that they could lead themselves. Uh, I would call this the Elvis is alive theory of the resurrection. Suppose I was a big Elvis fan. I'm not, but suppose I was a big Elvis fan, and I wanted to start the first church of Elvis. Uh, so I invent the story that Elvis did not really die in 1977, but that rather that El Elvis lives, and that he gives personal concerts to those who believe in him. First problem is, it wouldn't be that hard to disprove, would it? All you have to do is go to Graceland, dig up the body, do a DNA test, boom, no more Church of Elvis. But there's another problem. Let's just say there was a religious police at the time, and they come and arrest me for this claim of the, of the Elvis is Alive movement, and they threaten to pull out all my fingernails and all my toenails unless I re, uh, recant my claim that Elvis is alive. How many fingernails would they have to pull out before I go, oh, wait, 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 I don't mean literally he's alive. I mean, I just want people to remember, right? History tells us that of the 11 remaining disciples, 12 minus Judas, of the 11 remaining disciples, 10 suffered torture and death precisely because of their claim that Jesus rose from the dead. It has been said that people are often willing to die for what they believe to be true, but no one dies for what he or she knows is false. The second category of uh, explanations is what I would call the swoon theories or the mostly dead theories. That is, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He just passed out. And then uh, people just thought he was dead. And this theory requires you, if you think about it, to believe that Jesus was could be deprived of food and water and sleep for 36 hours or more, suffer the brutality of a Roman scourging, which by itself killed many men, carry his own cross to the place of execution, have iron spikes driven through his hands and his feet, suffer trauma, blood loss, and dehydration, have a spear thrust through his side, through a lung, and through his heart, and then somehow, in the coolness of the tomb, recover enough strength to single-handedly roll away a one-and-a-half-ton stone, overpower a group of armed guards, and disappear without a trace into history. Enough said. Finally, the category I would call the wrong tomb theory. That is, the women just got confused. And all the chaos and grief that got confused went to the wrong tomb, and finding it empty just assumed that Jesus had risen from the dead, and that's how the whole thing got started. And all the while, his body was lying somewhere else in another tomb. I like to say this is like forgetting where Lincoln is buried or forgetting where we put JFK. Where do we put him? I don't remember. The Bible gives a very different explanation, an unexpected explanation. He is risen. He is risen. Now, if we'd gone to Lennon's tomb that day and the guard said, he's not here, we would assume that, you know, they put him somewhere else. So we'd go to find him there. Uh, but if the guard said, he is not here and kept going and went, He's not here. He is risen. That would have sort of changed things, wouldn't it? It does change things. That three-word phrase, statement, changes everything. He is risen. But there's a third unexpected statement here, I think, and it starts with the word remember. Remember, the angels say, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. So what does it mean 
to live as though Jesus is alive. It means to remember. It means to remember what he said about himself, to remember what he said that he had to do and why he had to do it. It means to remember why he came in the first place. He came because the world is broken. He came because the world is a mess. Look around. The world's a mess. People are a mess. I'm a mess. And I hate to say it, but you're a mess too. That's why he came. It means to remember that he came to clean up the mess that's the mess in the world, to clean up the mess that's in you, to clean up the mess that's in me. Remember. And so what does it mean to live as though Jesus is still dead? It means to fail to remember. It means to forget why he came, why he died. It means to deny that you've made a mess. It means to deny. It means to forget that the world needs a Savior and that you need a Savior. Now let me stop there just for a minute. I know that we are all here today because in some way, shape, or form, we believe in Jesus. That's why we're here. However, I want you to understand it's entirely possible to believe in Jesus. That is to believe he really lived, to believe he really died, to believe he really rose again, but to forget what he's done for you. To forget what he wants to do in you. The angel says, remember. Remember. And then the third thing we see is the unexpected witnesses. Unexpected witnesses. A couple of weeks ago, um, I was sitting out in our back patio. It was a warm day, kind of like we have today, but it was a couple of weeks ago. Remember, we had that warm stretch come through. We were sitting on our back patio, myself, a couple of my boys, and one of their wives. And we were just sitting around a fire, enjoying the evening. And one of them piped up and said, uh, if for some catastrophic reason, all the Bibles in the world had been destroyed and all churches had disappeared, uh, what Bible character would you choose to restart Christianity? That was the question. It just kind of came out of nowhere. So we ended up having this kind of lively debate around the fire pit um, about who we would choose to restart Christianity if we needed that. I know it's kind of a ridiculous question, but bear with me. And we each took our turns making our choices, uh, choosing a character and explaining why we choose that character. It all began with the Apostle Paul because you know, he did it already, right? Then there's Peter and John, all clear and predictable choices. And then my daughter-in-law said, well, what about the women of the Bible? <coughs> Excuse me, aren't there some good women choices we could choose? So we all started to think. We realized we'd, all cho we'd chosen all male characters. And as we thought about it for a while, eventually I said, I know, I think I'd choose the women who went to the tomb that first morning. And here's why. Luke tells us, verse 8, and they, the women, remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now, we, we don't even notice this in our culture, but in that day, at that time, this is remarkable. Because it tells us that the women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. These women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and a few others, were the first evangelists to share the good news of the empty tomb, the good news that Jesus was alive. Luke says they remembered his words and told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. And this is hugely significant because if the story was a fabrication, if they were making it up out of grief and out of wanting to, to uh, start this new movement, 
the gospel writers would have never put this report in the mouths of women. Not in that day and that time, because their testimony would not have been considered reliable or credible. In that culture, women weren't allowed to even give testimony in a court of law. So they would never have put this into the story. It would have been discounted. And this is not only completely unexpected, but evidence for the authenticity of the book that we hold in our hands and read from the New Testament. Now, equally unexpected is the next thing we see, the response of the disciples. Verse 10, Luke writes, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Do you see that? <laughs> the disciples did not believe. Now, we don't talk about this part of the story very much, but the apostles uh, we're talking, that's not just Thomas. We're talking about Peter and James and John and Andrew. They flat out did not believe the women's story. It seemed to them, Luke says, like an idle tale. The word there means silly talk, nonsense. Now, uh, remember, and ladies, you're probably going to enjoy this part. Remember, these men, uh, these men were the ones hiding in fear in a room all together because they had seen the brutality. They had seen what Rome could do, and they didn't want to be next. They knew the, the temple police were out there, and they didn't, for all they knew, the, the Jesus followers were going to, going to be next, to be scourged and flogged and, and nailed to a cross. So they're hiding in fear, terrified. The women were the ones brave enough to actually go outside, to go to the tomb, to risk facing Roman soldiers, to risk facing the temple guard, just to anoint his body because they loved him. And they come back with the story of the empty tomb, and the men did not believe them. Can you hear the conversation? Ladies, you're tired. We're all tired. You're emotional. You're distraught. But that's just crazy talk. Again, if the story's fabricated, if they're making the story up, they would not have included this little detail because it's entirely embarrassing to the men who become leaders of the movement in a matter of weeks. And then I think we see a third unexpected response. Verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping to look in, and saw the linen cloths by themselves and went home marveling at what had happened. In his gospel, the apostle John also tells this part of the story, but it's he and Peter who run to the tomb. They have kind of a race. And John can't help mentioning that he gets there first, but Peter is the one who actually goes inside and looks. So here you have Peter. And we know a good bit about Peter, right? Peter had made a mess. Peter kind of was a mess. Who, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, he pulled a sword out, cut the ear off the servant's high priest. Jesus said, put away the sword. And on that night later, he denied he even knew Jesus three times out of fear. This is Peter, who was living as though Jesus was dead. He hears the witness of the women, and he does not believe. Silly talk. But, notice this, he does run to the tomb to check it out himself. Let me just say here, you may feel like you're not the most qualified witness in the world. You may feel like you don't really know how to explain your faith or share it with someone. The women thought they had failed. The men didn't believe them. But Peter ran to check it out for himself. You never know. Someone is going to run and check it out for themselves. 
What happens in the story? We see that Peter comes back. By the time he comes back, he believes. Because he's been convinced by the evidence. He saw the linen strips. He saw the empty tomb. And he believes. I've told this story before in several different ways, but my freshman year in college, I was one of 27 guys living on the fourth floor of a typical college dorm. And one of those guys was a guy named Charlie. Um, He and I weren't close friends at all, but he was on my floor, so I knew him a little bit. Charlie was smart and funny and loved to party, and he was also the most profligate sinner I'd ever met up to that point in my young life. In fact, Charlie was the guy my parents warned me about when I went away to school. You know, he drank, he smoked funny-smelling cigarettes, Uh, his girlfriend should have paid a residence fee for how often she was in our dorm. Uh, He was infinitely creative in his use of vulgar language. Uh, Now, at at that time, I wasn't terribly vocal about my faith. I was a follower of Jesus, but wasn't terribly vocal. It probably wasn't a very, I know I wasn't a very influential witness. In fact, if you'd asked me to share my faith with Charlie, I would have said, you know, you might want to save your breath. Not even God can save Charlie, right? Fast forward some 15 years or so. I didn't keep in touch with any of those guys, hardly, and especially not Charlie, but I would get this a couple times a year, this uh, alumni magazine that had class notes in it. You probably get those from your um, um, uh, alma mater, too, but I would read, I would just skim through them, see if I recognize any names. So I was skimming through it one day, and I saw Charlie's name, and the little blurb said Charlie, and it had his last name in there, and his wife, and had her name in there, just accepted their first assignment with Wycliffe Bible Translators. I was... I started yelling for Lorene. I was going, Lorene, come down here. She didn't know any of my friends in, from that time in my life. I said, this is Charlie. Charlie's a missionary. Can you believe this? He's a missionary. My old profligate, drinking, smoking, swearing friend had become a Bible translator. And then I remembered, weirdly, that he was an English major. And it made sense. I eventually, and it took several years, got in touch with Charlie, and I heard his story. Someone, way after college, had been a witness to him. Not me. Someone had been a witness to him. And Charlie, in a sense, had run to the tomb to check it out himself. And Charlie moved from living like Jesus is dead to living as though Jesus is alive. And he became an unlikely and unexpected witness himself and still is today as a Bible translator. Here's the thing. You cannot explain Christianity without the resurrection. We cannot explain Charlie without the resurrection. You cannot explain how Peter and John and James and the others went from broken, discouraged, and fearful men hiding, refusing to believe the testimony of the women, unable to remember, unwilling to remember what Jesus had already told them, how they were transformed from that, living as though Jesus was still dead, to apostles of Christ, willing to die as tortured martyrs for the claim The truth that Jesus is alive. You can't explain why millions of people throughout the centuries have given their lives sacrificially to care for the sick, to feed the hungry, to take the gospel of Christ to every corner of the globe. You can't explain it by saying, well, the story was manufactured. You can't explain it by saying, well, they went to the wrong tomb. You can't explain it by even saying Jesus was, you know, an inspirational teacher. You can't explain it that way. Christianity isn't about any of that. It's about death and resurrection. Back to my young son and angel, the angelfish. You know, we all have two problems. All of us. We've made a mess that we can't clean up by ourselves. And we have an expiration date stamped on us. We don't know when. We don't know how. 
But we will all, sooner or later, face the great enemy called death. And we need a Savior. We need someone who can take care of those two problems. And let me repeat, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who live as though Jesus is still dead and those who live as if he is alive. And today, somewhere under the modern city of Jerusalem, there's an ancient tomb carved out of rock that once held the body of Jesus of Nazareth, where the women went that day. And when they got there that morning so long ago, that tomb was empty. And it still is, because Jesus is alive, and we are all his witnesses. Would you bow with me as I close? Lord God, we thank you today for the story we celebrate and remember. We thank you for your word especially, written down so long ago, passed down through the generations so that we can believe. How we thank you for the great story we remember. And may we be among those who live as though you are alive. And may the witness of our words, may the witness of our worship, and may the witness of our lives cause others to run to see for themselves that indeed the tomb is still empty. You are not there. You are risen. You are risen indeed.